But the Wall Street Journal hit the nail on the head. The layoffs that we're seeing are in white-collar jobs. I don't know why we still call them that, because the people that used to wear white collars usually wear pink or blue or no collar at all. Uh, but the high-income tech jobs are where the layoffs are. Um, the generation, if you want to go this far, that's been most heavily impacted by this is Generation X. The people between ages about uh, 40 and 50, a little bit over 55 or so, in that range, that's the highest layoff group. It's a net layoff. So the Wall Street Journal called it a rich session. It's a recession for rich people. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting, at least for us, second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. Um, I've got another thing that's just a trend in technology that's uh, several trends in technology that we've been kind of following along. This isn't because we like one technology over another or any of that. It's a shift in the economy, and it's a noticeable one. Electric vehicle sales now amount for 16% of the new vehicles being sold across the planet. That is really important. Why? Why is it that electric vehicles are selling so much faster than they were a few years ago? Price. The prices are coming down. The reliability is going up. The maintenance costs are way, way lower. Uh, we announced this seven years ago that it was suddenly the technology was there to make the lifetime value of the car cheaper to purchase for an electric vehicle to an internal combustion. This is how technology works. It isn't from the ecological standpoint. It isn't from any of that other stuff. We have all of these ethical and moral decisions that we make, but it really depends on a technology that brings us something cheaply enough for us to switch over. Oh, yes, now I am very ethical and moral. People didn't like internal combustion in, the, in a political party for a long time and still drove them. I mean, the VW bus, which was synonymous with the Eco Warriors for so for so long was a diesel truck. I mean, it's a diesel automobile that didn't have an efficient motor at all. Uh, that thing was polluting everywhere it went. Oh well, I'm using biogas. Well, that's polluting even more. Uh, now come forward to today, those same people are in electric vehicles, but that's not the majority of who's buying electric vehicles. People are buying electric vehicles that are Republicans, that are Democrats. Well, why? Because they're nice and they're equivalently cheaper. If you can get something nice, nice that's also cheap, people tend to do it. At the same time, another thing in the background that's nowhere near as politically a hotspot. I think it's funny that electric vehicle sales are a political hotspot. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But one that is not a political hotspot, that if I guess politicians talked about, it might become one, but I'm not sure which political party would prefer it. Heat pumps. What is a heat pump? It's some kind of a heating and air conditioning thing, right? Well, it is a relatively new technology, we've talked about it in the past, that is more efficient in heating than burning natural gas right there to heat your room. Like, 
turning the flame on from the natural gas to heat the room with that flame, it's cheaper and more efficient to use a heat pump getting its electricity from a plant that could be tens of miles away from you or hundreds of miles away, even with the efficiency loss of having it piped through all those lines. And that is changing things. You know, we live in Texas. Texas has gone through some really weird power grid issues. One of the saving graces for Texas right now is heat pump technology is taking over on the new air conditioning side. We also have a lot of solar panels coming in. And the solar panels are getting the the sun at the peak periods in the summer that we need them. So technology is stepping in to provide what we need. We can't put in more coal plants. The natural gas plants are at capacity. We need some other stuff. So heat pumps, electric vehicles, solar power, all of this stuff coming together is is doing good things. Well, let's talk about another subject, if you don't mind. Certainly. The economy. What? No. Because, and what is it? because the economy is behaving in a manner that is very much unlike what it has been doing over the last half century. Uh, probably there's a time, if we go back far enough and if we had good enough records, we could find a time when the economy is behave- was behaving very much like it is right now. And we can guess that those things were there because we can see little bits of data. But unfortunately, the last time we had this set of circumstances that we could parallel it with was about 100 years ago. And there weren't a lot of good, reliable economic records being kept. So it's really hard to compare these. But for this is this is the example. If the Fed does what they have suggested very strongly they're going to do and raise interest rates two more times at least, which will take it up another half percent, we will have the highest short-term interest rates in the United States that we've seen in 22 years. If they raise it Another 25 basis points, so a quarter of a percent after that, we will simply have the highest interest rates in longer than that. The last time interest rates were this high, there was a major recession already underway. That was back in, in 19, the early 1980s, 22 years ago. There is no sign of a recession in the real world stuff. Now, admittedly, manufacturing is contracting. The, the manufacturing side of our economy in the United States, which is, for better or worse, a relatively small portion of our economy, is contracting. But here's the, here's the other side to that. The purchasers manager, the purchasing managers index, the PMI, for which is estimated by two different companies, uh, is down below 50, which means the, the manufacturing sector is declining. However, in construction, which is part of manufacturing, that was one of the highest hiring areas in the in the in last month when the Labor Department came out with their information. They added 23,000 jobs. They didn't subtract jobs, they added jobs. Every other time that I can find in the last half century, let's say post-World War II, where interest rates have been have rise, risen this fast, at this point, you see construction laying people off vigorously because you have to borrow money in most cases to build new construction. And the higher the interest rates gets, the more expensive that is. So construction starts to fall off. Instead, construction is accelerating right now. And the job production, we're at 3.6% unemployment, which when I was first learning economics was considered to be lower than it was humanly possible to get. Uh, the economy is in many aspects roaring full speed ahead, and yet we have higher interest rates than we've seen in 22 years. And we came, if you look at percentage of where they were two years ago, this is the biggest rise in interest rate 
in since we've been keeping records on that. And to, to add to that, um, one of the indexes that we talk about a lot throughout the history of our program is, is given out by the conference board. It's the uh, Index of Leading Economic Indicators. And we talk about it, and we've talked about it for decades on here. It's a fantastic index. And it keeps coming out with really, really bad news about what's coming in the future. So we break down into it. We say, all right, well, what is the bad news? Well, one of the pieces of bad news that is a big contributor here is what you've just been talking about last hour and this, this hour. The interest rate spread between the 10-year T-bill, which the, the conference board calls a T-bond, which is wrong, um, less the Fed funds rate. That's the interest rate area that the Federal um, Reserve raises and lowers when it's doing its open market meetings. Um, so the uh, the interest rate spread there is the inverted yield curve. That's a negative. So when we look at the components of the leading economic indicators, why are they leading indicators? One of them is the S&P 500 stock index. Well, we've talked about that. It's doing well. So that's a positive in the index here for the leading economic indicators. The leading credit index is down. The spread in the bond market is too high. So those are two negatives in this financial components. There's only three financial components in there. There's a one positive and two negatives. Okay, now let's go down a little bit. The non-financial components, and this is important. The largest uh, contributors to this part of the index are an opinion count um, and an index of new new orders. So the opinion is the average consumer expectations for business conditions. This isn't what they expect in their own economic area. That's notoriously wrong when they say, are we heading into a recession or not? That's a different kind of thing. What they're saying is in your business the places that you shop, do you like what you're seeing? Do you think it's going to be good in the future? And that's been negative. Um, and it's been, and it's one of the largest components of the negatives on the non-financial non side. We've got a lot of bad news out there. Uh, the other thing that's out there is the ISM index of new orders. You mentioned this, manufacturing's down. Um, new orders in manufacturing are down as well. They're down compared to what they were when we were ordering things that we couldn't get. So a lot of orders were going out, multiple orders were going out for the same item so that you could hopefully get the item at all. So we're seeing those orders drop. Those are the big components. The rest of the pieces of this stuff are, are neutral. The average weekly hours of manufacturing, it's 0.06% down. That's a tiny, tiny amount. That's that's within the, the error range. Uh, when we look at manufacturers' new orders, non-defense capital goods, it's it's 0.01% positive. So all these little average weekly initial claims, unemployment insurance, the manufacturing new orders, consumer goods, materials, all that stuff is neutral. The big negatives in these leading indica indicators are the yield curve's inverted. We're not ordering as new, as many things in manufacturing as we used to. And consumer expectations for business are down. Are those components that we usually look at and say th those have a big bearing on what's going to happen? Yeah. But when we look at the environment at which they're occurring, the new orders are down because last year we were ordering a bunch of stuff that we actually canceled orders on. We only got one of the things that we may have ordered three times just so we could get it. So laying that all out, this is a leading indicator. And, and I know I'm going into way too much detail. This is boring stuff. Why are we going in? This index is 
been consistent for decades in saying we're going to have a recession. And we've been hanging out for a long, long time below their recession indicator. It's getting on close to a year that they have been saying, we're going to have a recession, we're going to have a recession. And when we look back at all of the successes of this index, it generally calls the recession about three months beforehand, three to five months. Well, we're getting on a whole year. (laughs) And and so we're not saying this index is necessarily wrong, but it's looking at results of the pandemic that don't make any sense. Uh, The indicators also called for the recession that we had at the beginning of the pandemic to continue for seven or eight months after that when it was a one-month recession. Why did it call for that? Well, because uh, unemployment went way high up. And uh, when you throw that into the index, look, that's obviously going to be a bad thing. But we had stimuluses that offset it, and that's not part of the index. The amount of savings that we have or the the speed at which we're paying it, also not part of the index. So these are all contortions that have happened to the data. Uh, It's really up in the air. It's really, really not up in the air. I shouldn't say that. It's very, extremely very unlikely that we're going to have a recession in 2023. It's just, there's a global recession if you want to count that. The Europeans are not doing well. South America is not doing well. Africa is not doing well. Australia is not doing particularly well. Asia is not doing particularly well. And the United States is doing fairly well. Mexico is doing all right. Canada, yep, yep, we're okay. So kind of add that together and you can see there's a regional place where we're not really in a recession, but the Wall Street Journal hit the nail on the head. The layoffs that we're seeing are in white collar jobs. I don't know why we still call them that because the people that used to wear white collars usually wear pink or blue or no collar at all. Uh, But the high income tech jobs are where the layoffs are. Um, The generation, if you want to go this far, that's been most heavily impacted by this is Generation X. The people between ages about uh, 40 and 50, a little bit over 55 or so in that range, that's the highest layoff group. It's a net layoff. So the Wall Street Journal called it a rich session. It's a recession for rich people. And if you look at luxury items, the sales are down on luxury items. Uh, It's pretty clear that the rich side of the economy is in a recession. And the things that were complained about for the decade and a half following the global financial crisis of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, that's being reversed. Wages are up most for the lowest income. So what we're seeing here is a normal balancing thing. And when we say, hey, these things usually lead to a recession, they generally do. But not when you're sitting on such a huge pot of cash that we still have sitting in our banks. Uh, and that's that's the end of my long-winded um, meandering through generational unemployment. There's a couple of other aspects to this. Um, everything you've said is correct. I also want to note that you said sitting in the banks. Um, there is not necessarily the banks anymore. You're right. (laughs) Okay. No, this is, this is my point. When I first started as a broker, we had a similar situation going on. Interest rates were rising quickly. This was the early 1980s and some, and banks weren't keeping up with this new innovation called money market fund. And there was something called disintermediation. Oh, that's a good word. That's a really great word. Where people were removing their money from the banks and putting it into money market funds. And we had a rolling bank crisis for about a decade thereafter. That is also going on today. The banks simply cannot, 
banks have a portfolio of loans they've made. And they made those loans in many cases when interest rates were very low. So they're receiving low interest income on those loans and they're long-term loans. Uh, when I say long-term, they could be three years, five years, seven years, or 30 years. And yet the interest rates are being raised by the Fed so that people can go to a money market fund right now. And even a mediocre money market fund, we were just looking at them this week, are paying 4.44%. I say, meaning this is what I, whenever I say money market fund, it's a uh, uh, we're talking about treasury money market funds, the, the probably the more safe of the ver- varieties of money market funds. Some of them are paying five and a half percent. They're less, they're, you take some risk there because the FDIC doesn't insure those things. But yeah, there's when, when we talk about that, go, do your research to make sure you're insured in these products. This is that's vitally important. There's another fund that I looked at which invests solely in FDIC insured CDs, and somehow they managed to insure all the money you put in there, no matter how much money you put in there, because they just got so many banks across the country that they're putting their money in in the certificates of deposit is paying 2.19%. That is a very significant issue. Uh, people are removing their money from the banks and moving them into higher interest rates positions, which is perfectly normal, healthy behavior. It's important to do that carefully, but it's one of those things that the Fed has got to got to be on top of, and they're already working at being on top of it, putting some backing behind the banks, because we could really put a lot of banks out of business in a short period of time with what's happening here. We simply have not seen this kind of a rise of interest rates since the early 1980s. And in the early 1980s, it was a different world. We didn't have the internet rolling around. We didn't have the ability to go to bankrate.com and see where the highest rates you could get, highest money market funds, highest whatever, and then move your money instantly. Or that close is to one instantly. of the things. Yeah. It's, it is, well, almost instantly. In some cases, you can whip out your cell phone and move your money from this bank to that bank, uh, which is a little scary to me a little bit anyway. Um, so we got a lot of things going on in the economy right now that are just way weird. And what I would suggest to you is that there's a risk transfer going on too. You as an individual, in order to get looking for a higher economic return, are being asked to take on a higher level of risk. The risk is not unavoidable. The risk is there because a lot of the places where you promise the higher return are fairly sophisticated and they get more sophisticated as time goes by. And if you don't have an education and experience in finance, you're liable to, uh, this is, this typically will evolve out to the point where people are chasing higher and higher returns and there'll be some major blowups where they pay for it because they didn't take into account some of the fa- risk factors that they assumed weren't there. Uh, that is just an ongoing issue. It happens. It's happened at least three times since I've been in this business and I see it coming again. I see people migrating. And just assuming because it's a fill in the blank, it must be safe. And that is not true. The question you have to ask yourself is you have to say, do I know the chances of actually losing money here? And am I willing to accept those chances? And if you can't answer both of those questions, if you simply say, well, I think it's safe because Joe Blow did it, my neighbor did it or whatever, that's not a good answer. Uh, There's just a, a lot of danger out there that wasn't there before as these interest rate rises continue. You know, go ahead. All right. This is a complete shift in subject. Um, I have talked about this at least for three years, probably longer. I'd have to go back and look at it. But the Wall Street Journal has recognized it now. The headline is, SpaceX now has a de facto monopoly on rocket launchers, on rocket launches. <clears throat> de facto, 
what it's just a monopoly just just drop the de facto it is a monopoly uh what are we talking about particularly since the war in ukraine the number one competitor against spacex was the russian uh soyuz system their cosmonauts going up and down so on um there's this great article here that says rocket launches for outside company uh, companies or customers by company. So SpaceX in 2022 launched 27 commercial rockets paid for by someone else at a profit. Um, the closest competitor was Rocket Lab in New Ze Zealand who did nine. If you add all of the competitors together, they did not amount to as many rocket launches as SpaceX in 2022. In the first half of 2023, they've done 21 launches for outside customers. They did 27 for all of 2022. They're already at 21 halfway through the year. What does that mean? What's going on here? This doesn't count, by the way, the launches for Starlink. That's not an outside customer. That's SpaceX. And they did six additional on that in 2022. So they did 33 launches, which is significantly more than all of their other competitors combined. Um, the Russians aren't launching anymore. Uh, last month or, or last week, SpaceX did a launch for the European Union. It was a commercial launch that was originally intended for a Russian spacecraft when they were setting up the launch three and a half years ago. Something happened between then and now the Russians haven't been launching anything into space lately. They've been launching stuff into the lower atmosphere, and this is why we don't want them launching things into space. So their customers all dried up and went away. The Russian space program is dying at the moment. It is likely to be gone forever in the near future. Uh, so why am I bringing this up? This looks tremendously like another point in history. Uh, and I bring this up, I spoke earlier about Twitter and the fiascos that are happening there, and it's the same guy involved and what's happening, what is going on. If you go back in time to the Armada attack against Great Britain, the time of Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth I, as the Armada was invading, this is something interesting. The United Kingdom's navy was three warships, three. They were very nice warships, don't get me wrong on that, but there were three of them. So we've read history. We all know the Armada got attacked by the British fleet. So what happened there? If they only had three ships, how did they have a fleet? Well, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Francis Drake, who was privately going out and shipping goods all over the world, owned a bunch of ships and was in captain's associations with a bunch of other people who owned ships. Some of them were warships. A lot of them were warships because one of the things that they were doing was protecting trade for their other ships. So there was a big profitability in sinking Spanish warships or at least putting them out of business so that they could take the gold from them because they were stealing the gold from other people and they kept trying to attack the English. So Sir Francis Drake had a monopoly on British shipping. Not on shipping across the planet, but pretty close, because British shipping was the leading shipping in the world at the time. Elon Musk is Sir Francis Drake. And right now, if we want to get something into space, there are some other companies that could do it for us, but they're a lot more expensive and their reliability is a lot lower. We've got another Carnegie here, if we're not careful. Um, 
Andrew Carnegie owned all of the steel in the world, and it became a very vital piece of industry right at the same time. And because of that, he was able to do things that we can't even imagine today. If we were, you know, right now we have really, really rich billionaires. If we apply inflation to the net worth of Andrew Carnegie, he was a multi-multi-trillionaire. So Elon Musk is approaching that. And SpaceX is not being properly valued in his net worth right now because that thing is becoming a behemoth. When Starlink is the default for a large percentage of the population of the planet to get on the internet, and the only way to get into space is through SpaceX, there's an issue there. I'm not pulling this out to say, hey, it's great that Elon Musk is in charge, or I, it is a simple statement of fact. The Wall Street Journal has come out and say, this is a de facto monopoly. Hmm. And people go, well, I don't never need to send anything into space, so it doesn't really matter. Well, it, it will. It will. And at some point, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's probably going to be another decade before antitrust Justice Department stuff happens um, because that's how long it usually takes. Uh, but that is, I think, I consider that to be an important piece of information about the economy right now. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. 
Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally, um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people no phone tree during the week at. Two five four nine four seven eleven eleven. You can reach that line tool free at one eight hundred nine one four seven five two six. That's eight hundred nine fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.